Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are, and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. This is what it means to be well-read. You may have missed it, but in meditations, Marcus Aurelius quotes dozens and dozens of other writers and philosophers. He rarely attributes these quotes, and presumably that's because he was writing it in a tent in the middle of a battlefield. And so he didn't have his books beside him when he was quoting Socrates or Epictetus or Homer or Plato. No, he was transcribing it from memory. And this capacity for recall is indicative of the ancients' approach to reading. The philosopher Mortimer Adler has talked about how the phrase well-read has lost its original meaning. We hear someone referred to as well-read today, and we think of someone who has read lots of books. But the ancients would have thought of someone who really knows their stuff, who has dived deeply into a few classic texts to the point that they really understood them. A person who has read widely, Mortimer says of the modern reader, but not well, deserves to be pitied rather than praised. And the early 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes joked that if I were to read as many books as most people do, I would be as dull-witted as they are. And that's why, as we talked about recently, that reading and rereading a select few works of a select few authors is so powerful. The insights that come from their minds gradually get permanently implanted into ours. It's not about reading the Stoics once, but dozens, even hundreds of times. Which is why Marcus would say we can't be satisfied with just getting the gist of the things that we read. Read attentively, he said. Read deeply. Read repeatedly. 
aim for quality, not quantity. That's what it means to be well-read. The test then is not whether you have read a lot, but what you have read a lot. And look, if you haven't read The Daily Stoic, 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living, I wrote the book in 2015 and 2016. It's got original translations from all the Stoics. I think it's worked for a reason. I'd love to have you check it out. It's $1.99 on Amazon, as I said, as an ebook, uh, iBooks too, uh, anywhere you get uh, ebooks in the US. It's discounted in the UK also. But we also have a leather bound edition. If you've read the book a couple times and you want to invest in something a little more heavy duty that'll stand the test of time, you can check out the leather edition at dailystoic.com slash leather. Or if you just want the cloth bound lay flat version, the standard hardcover, you can pick that up uh, anywhere books are sold and also at store.dailystoic.com and I'll sign your edition as well. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. I uh, I got a cool surprise the other day. Um, uh, Adriana, the manager of the Pain and Porch, the bookstore, came up and said, hey, Ryan, t- Tom Ricks is downstairs. And I was like, what? That's crazy. Because he and I had just recorded the day before uh, a remote interview for the podcast. I assumed he lived in Washington or uh, somewhere on the Atlantic coast. I, I don't, I don't know why it got set up that we recorded remote, but it happens that he spends half the year here in Austin. And so he stopped by and signed a, uh, our stock of, uh, one of my favorite books that I've read in the last couple of years, uh, first principles, what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans and how that shaped our country. And, and I love the book so much. Not only did I interview Tom, I think we had a great interview almost exactly a year ago uh, on, the, on the podcast, which you should listen to. But now that the book is out in paperback, I absolutely had to have him on again. It's, it's a fantastic book. Uh, look, I'll just give you this blurb from, from General Mattis. Uh, he says, Tom Ricks knocks it out of the park with this jewel of a book. On every page, I learned something new. Read it every night if you want to restore your faith in our country. I don't know if it so much restores my faith, but it, it reminds me what philosophy meant, specifically the Stoics meant uh, at the founding of America. And we've, t- we've talked about, about this before, but the, the links between the founders and the Stoics are, are myriad. Uh, George Washington is introduced to the Stoics as a young man. Jefferson dies with a copy of Seneca in French on his nightstand. So the the founders were deeply schooled in the ideas that we're talking about uh, here on the Daily Stoic podcast. And that's what I wanted to talk to Tom about. It was a great interview. I Again, I very much enjoy this book. You can check it out, The Painted Porch, anywhere books are sold. Uh, listen to our first interview. Tom is a legit dude. He's a military historian uh, for the New York Times Book Review. He's a visiting fellow of history at Bowdoin College. He's written everywhere from the Washington Post to the Wall Street Journal, uh, where he was a reporter for 17 years. And look, he's received two Pulitzer Prizes, and he's the author of seven books, including Fiasco, The American Military Adventure in Iraq, and then Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom, his fourth consecutive New York Times bestseller. I enjoyed this book so much. I enjoyed talking to Tom so much. And I'm so glad that he came out and visited us at the Painted Porch, which I hope you will at some point too. So here's my interview with Tom Ricks. I love the book so much. I wanted to talk about it again. 
Um, I wanted to start, because uh, so much has happened since we talked last. Instead of getting into the politics at first, let's, st- let's talk one of my favorite little opening passages in the book. You basically talk about how in the middle of the American Revolution, if you'd went up to some average Revolutionary War soldier and tried to talk to them about Cato, some Roman figure from 2,000 years earlier, they wouldn't have been surprised by this at all. You say they, they, would have, they would have known exactly who you're talking about and almost certainly been able to engage with you in some sort of extended philosophical discussion about this, uh, about this stoic figure. Let's start there. How did that sure. come to pass? It came to pass because the play about Cato uh, by Addison, I believe, was one of the most popular uh, dramas of the 18th century. It had been put on several times in America. And this is, remember, at a time when there weren't movies, there wasn't television, there wasn't radio. And so dancing, music, and drama were basically the three forms of public entertainment. And I would add sermons to that, though they wouldn't. They'd raise their eyebrows at calling that entertainment. Sure. They knew uh, about this play. And I was, as I wrote that, I was thinking about a fictional soldier we might approach at the edge of, a, uh, of the perimeter of Valley Forge, who would say, yes, I saw the play last night. It was put on in the bakery. But not only was this figure of Cato important to them in the play, remember also that the American army, that this soldier was led by the American Cato, that George Washington emulates Cato, the Roman statesman. And the characteristics that we associate with Washington were the characteristics that his his contemporaries associated with Cato. That is to say, prudent, just, wise, and reserved, self-sacrificing, putting the state before personal interest. And it's intriguing to me the direct line we can draw from ancient Rome to revolutionary America to today. And that line is what we have come to expect of the presidency, of the way a president behaves, was set very much by George Washington in his two terms as the first president of the United States. And those characteristics are the characteristics of Cato, prudent, wise, just, reserved. And this is one reason I think that Trump shocked people so much because he departed from the norms of Cato. Uh, he was more a Catiline, um, somebody more into the mob, um, a bit of a panderer to the mob in a way that Washington or Cato never would be. Well, well you, you just listed the, the four cardinal virtues, which I'm in the middle of, of working on a series uh, about right now. Um, I think what you're really talking about, though, as far as those virtues is the power of having a hero or an ideal, a model that we try to to back out our behavior from. Uh, Seneca talks about how we should each choose ourselves a Cato. Someone were saying, well, what would they do in this situation? What is the model for a man, for a statesperson, a woman, a leader? What, what does that look like? Uh, Washington happened to have actually chosen Cato. But it sounds like really the, the reason that 2,000 years sort of disappear there is because 
they were celebrating those figures as their models, trying to emulate them day to day across oceans and centuries and all of that. And it was also part of their common vocabulary. When somebody talked about Cato, everybody else in the room knew what he meant. Uh, if somebody said he's like Cicero, well, that's slightly different, a bit more voluble, um, a bit more nakedly ambitious, yet still a respected and important figure. Uh, one of the things that really strikes me as we talk about this is George Washington didn't start as George Washington, the, the one, the person we know. It's through emulating these figures that they build themselves. Uh, they're quite conscious of the gap between the, the figure they want to be like and the person they are. Washington is quite conscious of a lack of education and of a volcanic temper. And he wants to learn to control that. And one of the ways you do that is through emulation of these model figures. You try to be like that, conscious all the time that you fall short of it. I mean, imagine there's a time, uh, and I write about this in the book, when Washington loses his temper in a cabinet meeting. I mean, he just absolutely loses his shit. And Thomas Jefferson, kind of stunned. And one of Who'd the been needling him for like eight years, basically. Yeah. Jefferson just basically transcribes what Washington says. And by God, I'd rather be back on my farm than having people write these things about me. Uh, to his credit, though, Washington does not go out and say, and let's jail those editors who criticized sure. me as his successor, John Adams did. And Adams, as I said, is more of a Cicero than a... Uh, than a Cato. Well, does, isn't that what makes it so impressive Impressive in the case of some like uh, Washington? If, and, and Cato, uh, at least according to Plutarch, had a bit of a temper himself. If, if they didn't have the temper, if they were just naturally reserved, naturally just, naturally courageous, etc., maybe it's still virtue, but maybe it's not. Isn't the whole point, the struggle to get there to keep it to keep it under wraps to to do it even though it's not maybe exactly who we are out of the womb. Well, yeah, I think it's because we are not out of the womb that way, uh, and we we kind of somehow know. Yes, Cato was not Cato to begin with. Cato built himself into being Cato. John Adams quite consciously built himself into the American Cicero, and though I have real problems with John Adams, he succeeds. He he becomes a great figure, a, a leader and instigator of the American Revolution, and the first president to turn over power to the opposition party peacefully. Now, he doesn't do so nicely. He leaves town before Jefferson's inauguration. But it's a very important moment in American history that John Adams turns over power and does not try to tear down the electoral process. The other hero of Washington, I think equally important to Cato, uh, perhaps a little bit less known, it, in, and perhaps a bit more mythological than historical, is Cincinnatus. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe tell us who, who that is. You got two generals who Washington is compared to. One is Fabius, the other is Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus is kind of lost in the myths of history. It's not clear exactly uh, how much of the myth is fact. He early on in Roman history, uh, he is a general. He is retired. He's gone back to his farm 
and he's at his plow, literally, when word comes from Rome that his help is needed, the Roman army is facing defeat, come back into leadership. He goes and he fights a very quick set of uh, battles, I believe, east of Rome against some local tribes. And within about uh, 10 days, he's back at his plow, his waiting plow, which is in the field where he left it. And this is important for two reasons. Historically, generals have not been so eager and willing to give up power. It's sure. always been a problem at the end of a war. Uh, the general sticks around. And this was something that the American colonists were very conscious of because the English Civil War, just over a central century earlier, you had seen Oliver Cromwell lead a revolution against the English king, cut off his head, and then take power. And so for, for, um, for, for Cincinnatus to give up power was an important model, and Washington follows it. Washington gives up power not once, but twice. First, at the end of the American Revolution, some of his officers urge him to undercut Congress and to demand payment of all the money that the officers are owed and the soldiers are owed. And Washington declines to do so. Instead, he goes to Annapolis, where the Congress is meeting. He bows to Congress. The members of Congress do not rise and bow to him because he's very conscious that civilian power should be superior to the military power. Then again, he, is, he becomes president. He's elected president. And he voluntarily steps down after two terms and establishes this custom, this president of custom, which is not law until the 20th century, that the American president serves just two terms. And again, he goes back to his farm. One thing I love it when he's back on his farm, um, in his waning years, but he becomes interested in abolition. He, he, he learns a lot from experience. He's not an educated man, but he's a reflective man, a thoughtful man. And he's looking at slavery and beginning to think, we got to do something here. He never quite gets around to it, but I think it's to his credit that at least he begins to think about it. Isn't it fascinating, this idea of high culture versus low culture? So uh, you talk about Cato. The, the founders would have been familiar with Cato from having read, read him in, uh, in Plutarch and, and the ancient texts. Uh, and then perhaps that ordinary soldier you're talking about is familiar with him because there's a popular play that they're, you know, Washington puts on a rendition of it at Valley Forge. At the same time, we're talking about this mythological, uh, uh, you know, historical figure of Cincinnatus that you and I may have learned about in school or books. But as you're telling the story, the average listener here is going to be intimately familiar with it because it's also absorbed into the plot of the movie Gladiator. And that these sort of ideas kind of are part of our culture, whether we know them or not. Um, you know, you could either be very clear on the illusions or you can just touch the power of the story, either way, it's kind of part of our identity and part of the narrative that we have as, as Americans, and then also sort of part of the, the narrative now of Western civilization. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, one of the interesting problems I had to wrestle with, though, as I wrote the book, is the realization, and the classicists all know this, but I didn't really, we have different classical worlds. Mm -hmm. The classical world that we 21st century Americans look at was not the classical world 
that 18th century colonial Americans looked at. How do you mean? In a variety of different ways. They just had different, they looked to different things, to different people, to different uh, eras. So, for example, we tend to put Greek art, Greek literature, and Greek philosophy ahead of Rome. We're taught, and at least I was taught as an undergraduate, you know, Roman literature is a bit of a joke. There are a bunch of road, there are a bunch of soldiers and engineers, but Roman literature isn't much to write home about. There's a few good speeches, a couple of couple of poems and stuff, but it's nothing like the great Greek tragedians. Well, the uh, 18th century Americans uh, generally did not read the Greek dramatist, sure, uh, except for Jefferson who is always the exception, who's more interested in the Greeks than the Romans, who kind of anticipates 19th century romantic thought. Um, In a variety of ways, the colonial Americans put Rome in front of Greece. They see Rome as the apex of Western civilization. Alexander Hamilton says the Roman Republic was really the peak uh, of Western life. They don't see the Greeks that way. Uh, when they do look at Greece, they tend to put the Spartans ahead of the, the Athenians, which we don't at all today. Sure. We see the Spartans as kind of the fascist of the time. Right. But they saw the Spartans as democratic, uh, egalitarian, uh, law-abiding, while they saw the Athenians as flighty, turbulent, and a bit too democratic for 18th century taste. And I imagine so much of that has to do with just what texts were available based on what printer had gotten what book from London and pirated it. You know, it just it could have just been like today, what goes viral versus what doesn't go viral. So much of it is chance and randomness. Well, uh, yes and no. So you have like um, uh, the the phallus. It's, it looks like foolish, but they're called the phallus brothers in Glasgow who do print great editions. Thomas Jefferson always wants their editions. The Greek literature was out there. Xenophon was read by some, but um, it just didn't have the respect that Roman literature had. So, for example, they thought the greatest playwright of the ancient world, um, and I'm blanking out on his name right now, it's a Roman comic playwright that nobody reads these days. Uh, Terence? Yeah, it's Terence. Yeah. I, I find Terence unreadable. Yeah. And so, very, not at all popular today. Like, you know, nobody talks about Terence. But he was like the Seinfeld of the 18th century. Uh, why they get the jokes and I don't, yeah. I don't know. Uh, they just had a, a different set of what they talked about in the canon. And I kind of, whenever you hear people complaining about the, the classical canon doesn't get respect and so on, the classical canon keeps changing. Right. They, you say you're attacking the canon. I sat down and looked, comparing when I was working on the book, what people in the 18th century read, and then what Harvard put from the Greeks and Romans in its, uh, what, the, what the Harvard Five-Foot Bookshelf of the Essential Books of the Western World, sort of late 19th century. And then I compared that to what the University of Chicago put in its Great Books of the World uh, in the mid-20th century. Each of them is quite different. And you see in the 18th century, really a two to one ratio of Romans to Greeks. And by the 20th century, Chicago has reversed that two to one Greeks to Romans. 
With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. But there is something to be said. I mean, the idea of common language, I don't mean that uh, literally, but the idea that there was some sense of what these illusions were or who these figures were, that sort of, uh, it's almost as if uh, how how we used, there used to be a, a handful of television shows. So we all watched the same yeah. television shows. We could make the same references. Um, as that falls away, even literacy with the Bible, you know, you read a, a Lincoln speech today, you don't get that he's riffing on this or that. Yeah. I, I wonder how much is lost by that. It's not that they've destroyed the canon, but the, the canon has become so much more expansive that we're not all reading the same books and we don't all have the same familiarity with the same figures. And so the irony is you could almost certainly talk to a soldier today and reference Cato, and they'd think maybe at best that you were referencing the Cato Institute, you know, or, so, or some sort of partisan thing today. Well, then I'd run. Yes. Um, um, I, we, our canon today, our popular culture canon, uh, you know, I think it's basically Star Wars, The Wire, Seinfeld, and Breaking Bad. Yes. Um, all you know, very you, inspirational stuff. Yeah. Uh, those, you know, those uh, will get instant responses from people. Uh, it was a much smaller world, though. Remember that the 18th century colonial America, sort of uh, 1750, if I recall the number correctly, had something like 8,000 college graduates total. Right. Uh, and these are people who tended to know each other, especially because people tended to stay in their own region. You know, Harvard students basically came from Massachusetts and New England, Yale students from Connecticut, uh, Columbia King's College from New York, Princeton, 
is the big exception. Princeton, they came from all over the Eastern Seaboard because they consciously wanted it to be a national college even before there was a nation. And William and Mary, again, is a, is a school for Virginians. This is one reason. It was, it's so intriguing to me when James Madison, from a slightly younger generation, decides not to go to William and Mary and go to Princeton. That really is a departure. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's easy to be sort of snooty about it, but it, there is value to people being steeped in these texts, uh, and, and you you lose something, I think, when that falls away. I agree Even if that. you're self-taught, like Washington, I, I agree with that. And see, the interesting thing is because you had a small elite culture, even people who didn't read it uh, knew they picked it up. Yeah. Uh, who, you know, Cato, Cicero, Caesar, they knew, you know, Catiline, they knew what these things were. And that that is what I, I like about Washington. You know, Washington's probably the only one of the founders that read these texts in English, as opposed to in the original Greek or Latin, or in Jefferson's case, sometimes in French. Um, Something I would emphasize more about Washington, I wish I did, I sort of was thinking about this when I picked up the paperback and I hadn't, hadn't looked at the book for a, a year. Washington has one foot in both worlds. He, he, he knows the classical culture by osmosis, but Washington's education is really much more typical of America at the time. Washington learns about life on the American frontier, yeah. and that's a very hard school. And Washington, in one person, manages to combine these two very different strains of how to be an educated American. Yeah, it's similar to Lincoln, too, where, yeah, he's very familiar with the ancient texts, but he read them on his own, not in an elite university, had to struggle to find out what they meant, not just generally, but what they meant to him. And I think that's probably why Jefferson or by why Washington and Lincoln both have the most interesting interpretations of those ideas, because they came to them independently as opposed to being fed them through the university system. And they really believe in them in a way that, say, Aaron Burr doesn't. Right. Aaron, Aaron Burr, that, you know, for him, that's just all that virtue bullshit. Yes. Um, you know, Burr is sort of what's in it for me. It's also interesting that Washington and Lincoln, I think, have a much better grasp of what America is about and what American people are and what they want and what they were willing to die for than do, say, Adams or Jefferson or even Madison. And that's why they were both, I think, profound leaders as opposed to uh, intellectuals in the way that that, that Jefferson and, and Adams were. Um, neither of them could have commanded the troops through the depths of the American Revolution in that way. They could no, have- it's, it's, it's intriguing. I mean, that sort of Jefferson, you know, in, in the play, Hamilton shows up after the revolution and says, what I'd miss, you know? Yeah. And it really does capture, he doesn't seem particularly interested in the American Revolution. He's governor of the biggest state. Yeah, it seems kind of shocked when people say, well, you're going to help out with this revolution thing? And Washington's kind of prodding him. Hey, Thomas, you know, I'm fighting a war here. And Jefferson's attitude is sort of, well, I'm busy designing a house. So we both have problems, George. <laughs> And he doesn't seem to get it, you know, yes. to the point at which Jefferson is standing in Monticello and he looks down the hill and there are British soldiers coming up the hill at him. 
and it's like me. Why you know, little me? I just wrote the Declaration of Independence. Why are they trying to capture me? And off he goes, riding up Carter's Mountain as the British chase after him, nearly capturing him. One of the things that I think is so interesting in the book is you managed to find over and over again how the founders were all kind of independently saying the same things uh, in their own wording and how often, obviously, there's this is rooted in some sort of ancient text or philosophical idea. But the the, the one quote that that pops to me the most today, and I think we're struggling with it today, is this idea, Madison expresses it, but so do the other founders, this idea that the American system is impossible without virtue in the people. What did that mean? And uh, why is it something that, th that they seem to talk about so much? They'd all been taught that public virtue was essential, that the public man, and there were no real public women, it was not an acceptable role, the public man puts country before self. Now, Washington is also a very observant man. He sees and learns a lot from experience. And he's one of the first people to begin talking about this. During the revolution, this virtue thing isn't working out. He said it, it, it's, a, it's obviously essential to have some virtue, but it's not sufficient. Um, what are we going to do here? And he's not thought of as a great political philosopher, but he's really one of the first to begin talking and thinking about this. The much younger Madison is also beginning to think, you know, we're trying to rely on public virtue. The system's not working. The Articles of Confederation assumes that people will do the right thing, and they're not. So what are we going to do? And Madison um, leads the way in saying we need to have a new fundamental law of the land, one that hopes for virtue, but doesn't assume it, and that balances interest with interest. How do we have a large republic when Montesquieu says that republics have to be small? How do we have a sustainable republic when there are very few instances in history of republics lasting a long time? And something that's very pertinent today, the third question they're facing is, we just had an insurrection in Massachusetts. Shays' Rebellion in Western Massachusetts, the national government fell on its face when it tried to help Massachusetts. It called for troops and money. Neither one came forth from the states. Finally, the insurrection is put down when the governor of Massachusetts raises private funds and pays a private militia to go out and put it down. And so they put together this constitutional convention, and one of the things they want to have is domestic tranquility with a mandate that the federal government has a role in ensuring domestic tranquility, which they write in. That's kind of the shout out in the Constitution to Shays' Rebellion. So, yeah, I've been thinking about that um, over the last year. When, I, when this book came out, we had not had an insurrection, insurrectionary-like riot at, in the Capitol building. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems major like constitutional writers uh, look very, um, very prescient. Yeah, it, maybe it's that Washington knowing what it took out of him, for instance, to turn down power, to, to end after two terms, to keep his temper in check, to not be corrupt, to not be enriched by what happened. Maybe he understood that like, hey, most people aren't going to be able to do this. And to simply rely, to live in this fantasy world that Jefferson or even Adams uh, some uh, to a certain degree, Madison lived in this this sort of southern uh, fantasy of 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 being back in Greece or Rome. 
was it realistic that, you know, he he understood the down and dirtiness of the, you know, Joe Sixpack, to, to use that phrase, uh, that, that 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 wasn't the norm. And you work, you can't just expect people to to be Cato's. You know, we all we can't all be Cato's, as they used to say in Rome. It's it's silly to expect that. And that's a good point. Washington is thinking, you know, none of you fellows have ever had a hatchet whiz, you know, whiz past your head yes. uh, suddenly when you're walking in the woods. It really strikes me, especially with Jefferson. He lived his life within sight of the Blue Ridge, but he never crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains. Whereas Washington was fascinated by America. He's out there, you know, going out and talking to the French uh, who are coming down out of Canada and occupying the Ohio River Valley. Uh, even after the revolution, he, his fantasy, which he never got to achieve, was to invite Lafayette to join him on a grand trip around America, you know, including well west of what the United States was. He wanted to go out the Ohio Valley, down the Mississippi. He really just wanted to go out and see this big place. Uh, he has a grasp on what Americans are. Uh, and I think that's reflected in the work they do on the Constitution. They disperse power uh, across the, the nation in so many different ways, across the states, between the state and federal government, between the three branches of the federal government and, and two branches of the legislative branch of that government, two houses of the legislative branch. And they do things like the, they didn't follow the British example. They're conscious of this. Um, so, for example, members of Congress do not sit in the cabinet. They were saying, OK, the parliament, you know, we're not going to be like the English. Where the, where the parliament also becomes the executive with the prime minister. They make these big separations. And it's something I was thinking about recently. Or even the decision to write the constitution, to have it on a piece of paper so you can't argue about what it is or isn't. Exactly. And they explicitly say the people are sovereign. It begins, you know, we the people. Uh, we, we own this thing. It is our republic. It doesn't, you know, it, it's the people's thing. Uh, it's it's very impressive, the, the wisdom that's embedded in little corners of the Constitution. Uh, I was thinking about this coming out of uh, the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Uh, you have these three branches of government that all react differently to the January 6th attack. Congress is divided. Uh, the executive branch for 14 days is in the hands of uh, President Trump, who effectively uh, the insurrectionists, exactly. Uh, but there's the third branch of government out there, the judiciary, the judicial branch, and again and again, I think 49 times out of 50, the judicial branch slam dunks the allegations of fraud and says, "No, that did not happen." And you have this independent judiciary that kind of is like the cavalry riding to the rescue, uh, with a very powerful judiciary. Now, I have real problems with the Supreme Court these days. I think it has terribly overstepped its bounds. And politicized. Yeah, yeah. but the judiciary really played an important role here um, that partly was the design of the Constitution, not, entire, not entirely. But there's also in the Constitution these little bit embedded bits of wisdom that we don't even realize. Another aspect that really struck me over the last year was there's this thing in the Constitution that says the states run elections, including for the federal government. And it's kind of weird. Why would the states 
run elections for the federal government. Well, imagine if the federal government ran, the head of the federal government being the chief executive, if President Trump had to certify the uh, the last presidential election, he wouldn't. Or could have. cancel could cancel the election outright, like Lincoln could have. That people yeah. just wondered if Lincoln could have done that in the Civil War, and he really couldn't. He didn't have the power. Whereas I think Trump would have asserted, uh, you know, if he had it in the Constitution, absolutely would have said, no, this is a fraudulent election. We're going to have another one in a couple of years. Meantime, I'm just going to be uh, interim president here in Oklahoma, and we'd be going along here. You know, it's like his health care plan. It'll be here in 40 days. Well, uh, this to go back to this idea of virtue in the people, it, it strikes me as a debate we're still having, right? So I live in Texas, and and you know our governor has said a, a number of times that the way through the pandemic, he says it's not through mandates, it's through personal responsibility, right? Which time and time again has failed, right? Like Texas is one of the hardest hit states in the country by COVID. Uh, it, it has a horrendous death count, a horrendous toll. I think something like 50,000 people have died since the vaccines have been rolled out because yeah. this 50, unnecessary deaths. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this idea that you can solve something as important as virtue is to the Stoics, to myself, the idea that you can just say, Oh, it's on the people that it's about virtue. It's about personal responsibility. You know, for, for 250 years now, we've struggled with the insufficiency of that idealism and it sa- it's weird because it sounds higher. It sounds like it's closer to what the founders meant or that it's more idealistic to say, no, you know, we should, it's about personal responsibility. But, but even in the 1700s, they were struggling with the insufficiency of those ideas, ideals in practical reality because people are people. They don't do I what they should. I disagree with that. I actually think they had the answers. I think they'd gone through this and they, had, you know, these were people who t- faced life and death. They knew that if they lost the revolution, many of them would likely have been spent life in, in jail or been executed. Um, what we have in this country right now is a right, an improper right-wing overlay on the Constitution uh, that has been put there a lot by the Supreme Court. Uh, the Constitution says nothing about capitalism, nothing about the market. Um, Nothing about Christianity. They, those are literally all unconstitutional ideas. What the Constitution does speak to twice is the general welfare. Yet this has been entirely neglected by ideologues like Governor Abbott. The federal government, under the Constitution, has a responsibility for the general welfare. Governor Abbott by and President Trump through, through rhetoric that has encouraged people not to get vaccinated has basically violated the constitutional mandate to protect the general welfare. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're 
you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's code daily stoic order using doordash today for eligible users only terms apply no no i i I agree what i'm saying is that some of the founders thought you know virtue is it the way through this is virtue and through responsibility and then i feel like you had more realistic founders like washington who who sort of understood like no this there had like we i guess what i'm saying is we've been decrying federal overreach since the very beginning of uh of the republic when that federal overreach is often at, at its basis trying to solve the very real problems of governing a large country. That I agree with. That that um, I think the biggest problem in American history frequently has been federal underreach. Yes. Uh, when you see the critics of federal overreach, frequently they are also the pro-slavery crowd. Uh, you have the um, senator, I think from Georgia, who in about 1820, said if the federal government can build canals, it could just as easily abolish slavery. They saw the connection between big government in one area and government power in another area. Uh, I do think that the you need to give credit to the people who wrote the Constitution. They have seen the failure of excessive reliance on virtue alone, and they're saying, in this Constitution, we're going to give you an instruction manual on how to deal with that problem. One is the Madisonian dispersal of power, so that if you want to go anywhere, you're going to have to get around gridlock, you're going to have to make compromises, deals, and so on. But another is the phraseology of the common defense and the general welfare. It appears twice, and that is a mandate to government to look out for general welfare. Yeah, and I think philosophically, what's also probably missing is not only is government obligated to look out for for people, but I think philosophically, we have an obligation to each other, right? And and if mm-hmm. anywhere virtue has fallen short, it's this idea of, you know, people go, I'm going to make the personal decision that's best for me. Yeah. I think that's what the founders were talking about. They were saying, we're going to have this uh, legal framework, but you have to individually, you might be able to do whatever you want with your private corporation under the law. But you have an obligation as a man or woman of virtue not to pollute the rivers or streams in the town in which you live. 
you know, not right. to, to abuse your you fellow fail, human beings. If you fail in those obligations, the government has the duty and the right to intervene because the government represents the people whose interests are being harmed. Uh, so I think yeah, the Constitution is not just the fundamental law of the land. It also is a peace treaty between the states with different interests. And as you say, it also is kind of a marching orders for the American people uh, in the way you've been talking about, but also in the Bill of Rights. Uh, you know, we, we, it's hard to define what a Frenchman is or what an Englishman is. I can tell you what an American is. An American is somebody who follows the uh, first 10 amendments, uh, who doesn't slug a reporter when he asks a question, as a congressional candidate did. Uh, also under the First Amendment, uh, an American is, it's a good American doesn't shut down free speech on, on campus because they find it offensive. Uh, you support the right to, to others to have free speech, even repugnant speech. Uh, and so on through through these through the entire Bill of Rights and through the other amendments like the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments. So, for example, voting is the most American of acts. It is the basic building block of this country. By the way, it also is nonviolent. Sure. Uh, so, when you support voting, when you encourage people to vote, you, that is encouraging the country. When you undermine faith in voting. When you claim the whole system is fraudulent, that is un-American and unpatriotic behavior. Or you take active steps to disenfranchise people, as as both political parties have have done throughout mm -hmm. the the history of this country, because they fear the political power of that group exercising its representations in in government. Yeah, and this goes to I mean, I have a lot of problems with Jefferson. I think he's probably, you know one of the biggest hypocrites in American history. But Jefferson, in addition to the Declaration of Independence, has another great document, his first inaugural address. When he, take, uh, when he becomes president in uh, 1801, and he gets up and he says, look, we're not going to be like John Adams. I'm not going to throw the opposition into jail. Uh, I'm not going to tell editors you can't criticize the president. And he really establishes a norm there that we will fight each other tooth and nail peacefully and politically. But when the election's over, uh, we go on and he says we are all Americans, basically. I wonder if you learned that from, from Washington, because Je Jefferson and Washington were at such loggerheads during the presidency. And he was essentially undermine, attempting in many cases to undermine Washington. And Washington never really, uh, Washington had the first team of rivals cabinet, I guess is what I would say. And, and, and that was it. Uh, an illustration of his temperance and restraint, to be sure. He, he and I think, I think Shep, that actually would be a great book. What, what Jefferson learned from Washington, even though he'd never admit it. Yeah. And I think he did learn that. He also had the very interesting experience of being the opposition for eight years to, or enough to, uh, to four for four years to Madison, and seeing people he knew thrown into jail for expressing anti-Adams views. And so he's had both that example of Washington's tolerance and the feeling of not knowing what the knock on the door is going to be at night. Uh, and he says, as president, yeah, we're going to 
incorporate both those things into the way I operate as president. Yeah, as flawed as Jefferson is, you might argue he's sort of the Aristotelian mean between the impossibility of Cato and the Ciceronian flaws of Adams. He's kind of right there between the two, personality-wise. Well, also, well, and then you got Aaron Burr out there, which is, <laughs> if things really go bad, Aaron yes. Burr becomes president. I, don't, I think this country wouldn't have lasted past 1810. You know, there would have been a third reorganization, a breakup of the country or something. Well, um, you mentioned Cataline earlier. That that as as heroic as Cato was to the founders, Cataline, who, who I talk a little bit about in my book, Lives of the Stoics, was the was the cautionary tale, exactly what they didn't want, what they were trying to build a system to neutralize. And I suspect mm-hmm. you could say that 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 Burr doesn't manage to succeed, is it? Is, is proof that they they largely succeeded, but who who is Catalina and and why is he so loathed by the American founders? He's almost their political cartoon. I I don't know. I I'm sorry. I haven't read what you've written about him. I, I'd like to. Uh, I suspect that he gets a bit of a bad rap. Sure. Uh, I suspect that he may have simply been the first pretty successful populist in Roman politics. Uh, But putting aside whatever the facts are, and they're hard to know, what we do know is what the revolutionary generation of Americans thought Catiline was. They thought he was, um, what happens when you have somebody who lacks virtue, who is selfish um, and self-indulgent, who plays to the mob, these become the characteristics that they not only don't want to emulate, but when they see them in others, they're deeply suspicious of. Uh, it amazes me, though, given that Aaron Burr really seems to have been the American Catalina, how, how close he comes to succeeding. How um, The guy nearly became president. You know, a couple of throws of the dice different. Uh, and Burr could have been president. And I just don't know what would have happened at that point. Yeah, and it's it's funny. Um, Cicero, you know, is the is the opponent of Catiline, and probably does kind of exaggerate it and makes it all about the the irony of Cicero. I found out this is what I talked about in Lives of the Stoics is that he kind of wastes himself on the wrong crisis, right? He he mm. he he pulls out all these desperate uh, measures, uh, overreach, etc., to block Catiline. And uh, and then is so sort of uh, extreme about it and so proud of himself about it that he has no credibility left when the real threat of Julius Caesar comes and yeah. he has no political capital left and, and seems like his judgment has escaped him. And then then the, his dreaded overthrow actually does happen and, and Cicero is not there to do anything about it. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, it- my dream is that one day we'll discover some text hidden away somewhere in the Middle East uh, that will change our understanding of that entire period. I just think um, we t- Cicero gets a bit of a free ride in history, uh, his account of what happened and how things went down. Well, he's kind of a Winston Churchill thing where he says, history will, will vindicate me because I'm going to be the one that writes it. Yeah. Um, the difference is we have a lot of different observers of Winston Churchill. Uh, for Churchill, 
what I love about him is his entire life is in many ways a failure. He just has one great year, 1940, in which he saves Western civilization. And, you know, if you can have one good year, saving Western civilization is a pretty good, pretty good achievement. Yeah, no, as he says, when destiny taps you on the shoulder and you it's your finest hour. It was a little bit longer than an hour, but but he he did exactly what he'd sort of prophesied. But not quite a year. I mean, it's really striking to me also when you read Churchill's collective speeches, he really doesn't say much after 1942 that's worth a damn. Um, it, it, he's almost bored. Uh, he knows that his moment was from the spring of forty until the entry of the Americans in December 41. And as he says, after Pearl Harbor, he says, okay, basically we've won the war. You know, now the question is just how this whole thing plays out over the next three years. That's my favorite uh, part of the crown uh, where Lithgow's playing Churchill and uh, he's sort of got, he's come back to power and all he can do is, all he wants is messages from the Americans or news of the Soviets. And he's just bored with sort of ordinary British politics because I think he knows it'll never be as dramatic as it was in those sort of glory days. It's a terrible mistake in his in his life to, to go back and get elected prime minister, whatever it was, 1950. Uh, I think the only reason he did it was because he'd never been elected prime minister. He'd been selected prime minister in May 1940, uh, and he wanted to win an election. Instead, the British th- public threw him out in the uh, summer of 1945. And he's deeply resentful of it. And he wants to show, I can win the prime ministership. But by that point, he's senile bored and presiding over the dissolution of the empire. Exactly the job he doesn't want. And then look at what else happens with the British in the early 50s. Is It turns out that the establishment is rotten. Kim Philby and all these spies, including the Queen's advisor on art, are all these commie spies. And I mean... There's a there's a great book to be written on Kim Philby and James Bond. You know, James Bond is invented in reaction to the Philby thing. Um, it's a way of Ian Fleming to say, well, actually, British spies can be rather romantic and dashing. We're not just all traitors. <laughs> well, so the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I think what's so fascinating, uh, I, I wrote about this at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, Marcus Aurelius living through the Antonine Plague. Then you have uh, the founders, smallpox, typhoid, typhus, all these different epidemics that even at the beginning of, of, of Washington's career as a general, you know, he has to make this decision about a mandatory vaccination for the troops. And so, you know, again, we think the past is this thing that's so distant, so unrelatable, or we think these issues are settled. And then here we are all these years later litigating the very same issues, my, the, the quote I keep coming back to from Marcus Aurelius, he says, look, there's two kinds of plagues. There's the plague that can take your life and the plague that can affect your character, destroy your character. Mm-hmm. And I suspect he was reacting to the the types of radicalization and, and extreme insane depths we've seen some of our fellow Americans go in the face of this virulent pandemic that's killed so many people. You remind me of a conversation I had with Danielle Allen, who actually would make a, a good guest for you. Um, you know, she is a double PhD, teaches at Harvard, uh, I think a PhD in philosophy, and I think a PhD in the classics, if I recall. One from Harvard, I think one from Cambridge. And she was talking to me about Cicero's uh, On Duty, 
And she said the dirty little secret as a classicist was she found it really boring. She could never, just sort of, you know, she had to teach it a couple of times. It was just sort of a drag. And then she said she picked it up in a moment of crisis in American politics. I think it was after, just after uh, January 6th. And she said suddenly the words blazed on the page. And she realized Cicero's writing in a moment of crisis. What is your duty when the world's coming down around you? And she said suddenly it felt very different. Uh, I think the Constitution is worth rereading in that context uh, and also in the context of classicism. One thing that really struck me in the last year is how resilient the Constitution is. I've had some really depressing moments in the last year. Um, this latest thing with Kyle Rittenhouse is just one more. I just think that's going to lead to violence in American streets. Um, and we seem too accepting of political violence in this country right now. We, yeah, menacing. The, the idea of menacing is, strikes me as an interesting interplay between the First and Second Amendments that we are struggling to grapple with. Yeah. And, you know, the famous statement that your right to swing your arms ends at the beginning of my nose. Um, right now, we seem to have the Second Amendment seems to have run roughshod over the first here. Yes. And we've lost our balance on it. So I've had these depressing moments over the last year, yet I come back again and again to the thought that the U.S. Constitution has a resiliency built into it that I don't always remember. And I think as a country, we can appreciate better that the Constitution took some rough punches yeah. in the last year. Uh, but it came back. It never got knocked out. The system has worked. It has been herky-jerky. It's been scary. It's had hiccups. But the American system has worked. Now, has all of it worked at all times? No. I think Congress is still reeling and is not sure of, of what its role is or how it works. And uh, the presidency under Trump has some self-inflicted problems. I think under Biden, there are, there are some genuine problems with the presidency. Sure. But the judiciary, as I did, said, stepped up, and this three-part system, which is meant to reflect what they learned from the classics, has the resiliency in it that goes, but takes us back to Aristotle. When Aristotle says you want these three aspects of an aristocracy, a monarchy, and the people, and if they can balance, then you can have a sustainable system. And, and I think so much of that is rooted in, in the fact that whether you're talking about Aristotle's time or Cato's time or Marx Aurelius's time or Jefferson's time or FDR's time or our time, is that people are people and we've been struggling with the same perennial and timeless problems. I, was, I read this Washington Post piece that I never, I never thought of. And when you read Franklin's autobiography, it sort of feels out of place in retrospect. But... Um, the piece basically posits that uh, Jeff, or Franklin, as sort of a scientific mindset, was very uh, interested in this newfound technology of inoculation, and mm -hmm. his wife was very skeptical of it. And mm -hmm. they have this uh, spousal argument. They decide not to inoculate their son, who shortly thereafter dies of, of smallpox. Yeah. And and he, this is something he calls out in his autobiography and says, "Hey, please learn from my example." I wish I'd taken this risk. I, we were afraid of something and we made the wrong call. And just to think, 
you know, three weeks ago, my wife and I, my son turned five and had to mm-hmm. think about what decision are we going to make here? And just mm-hmm. as 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 Washington had to think about uh, as as uh, as Biden had to think about, you know, a mandatory vaccine mandate for all the members of the of the federal government or or, or the armed forces. It's just like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And as you mentioned, George Washington, uh, I don't think we would have won the war, Revolutionary War, without George Washington. And one reason George Washington wins and survives the war is he had had smallpox on his only trip outside the United States to the Caribbean. Uh, One other aspect of this that's quite striking, we haven't talked about race in America, and I think it's crucial always. Sure. Sure. The smallpox inoculation in America is credited to a Dr. William Boylston, who is a relative of, I think, an uncle of Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife. What is insufficiently credited is that Boylston probably learned the method of smallpox inoculation from an African enslaved man in Boston who knew how to do it and told Boylston about it. It's pretty incredible. And and to think, yeah, it basically at two pivotal moments in American history, the original colonists and then with the inoculations, you know, we are we are uh gifted knowledge from first indigenous peoples and then the enslaved peoples. Uh these breakthroughs, this way how to do stuff that we would probably not be here without. And yet uh it's considered, I don't know, critical race theory or whatever to to acknowledge these things, uh, that it's yeah. somehow taking the shine off American history to acknowledge and credit the real reasons we're here in a lot of cases. Exactly. I, I, you put it that beautifully. It's uh yeah, it's it's ter- it's terrifying to think not only uh did did we struggle with these things 200 years later, but we can't we can't have the the issue can't be settled, you know, whether whether the government has the power to force people to 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 take an obvious uh uh medical procedure at, at to, to you know to to benefit not just themselves but the common good and we're we're not just litigating these things but people are throwing themselves in front of the barricades to to prevent that from happening it's it's, it's maddening to me i think there's always uh, going to be this tension in american history uh between our past and our aspirations yet this is something that has really come home to me in this conversation with you the Constitution embodies all these things. That They're looking at these contradictions. They're trying to figure them out. They're trying to deal with them. What I love about the Constitution is they wrote it to be a living, changing document, to be amended, as they called it. Uh, they gave us this open-ended document based on their experience of all the greatnesses and all the evils of the human being and all the weaknesses and, and all the... And, they, they they say in the Declaration of Independence that all people are created equal. And we're still trying to figure out how to actually make that a reality. This is not entirely a bad thing. This is this dynamic tension in American history. It feels to me like almost turning the ignition key of the country. Yeah. It turns on the motor. Who are we? What are we going to be? How are we going to do it? It's a continu- I mean, James Mattis. Um, 
retired uh, Marine general, former Secretary of Defense. Mutual loves friend talk, of both of us. Yes, and he loves to talk about, and actually a big fan of the Stoics. Uh, used to carry Marcus Aurelius into battle in his backpack. Um, he loves to talk about the American experiment. And if there's anything that the last year has brought home to me, is the Amer- it is still an experiment. It still can fail. And it's our responsibility to try to make sure it doesn't. Well, that was the, the place I wanted to end with you. I was As I was prepping for this, I pulled up my copy of your book. And every time I finish a book and then I go through it, I mark when I did it. So this is December uh, 2020. You and I talked. The election had already happened. But I remember we were talking about what people were then referring to as, uh, as Trump's uh, attempt to undermine our uh, faith in the electoral process, right? And I, I remember there's a video of us that's sort of gone viral uh, where I said, he's not attempting to undermine faith in the election. This is a slow-moving coup attempt. And, mm-hmm. and as, it, as it turns out, that's what it was. Uh, uh, not since 1812 had, had, mem- had, had the, the, the capital of America been attacked in that way as it was on, as on January 6th. I'd be curious as, as we wrap up, what do you think the founders would have thought about those events from November to January 2020? And what what advice or tools do you think they have for us as we as we dig out of the wreckage uh, of this, uh, I think, what will be studied in hundreds of years if, if America is lucky enough to continue the experiment as a, as a pretty dark moment in American history? Uh, first of all, I think they would have been appalled at the attack on the Capitol. Um, Jefferson, the Romantic, uh, said the U.S. Capitol building, it wasn't just the headquarters for American politics. It was to be a temple of liberty. And so this was not just a political attack. It was an insult to America's secular religion of liberty. The second thing I think that really would have bothered them, many others of them, was the flag of the Confederacy was carried into the Capitol. Uh, it was flowing there. and It had never flown there during the Civil War. It never made it in there. And also, the Capitol was supposed to be attacked on 9-11. It was the third target. Um, the, in it, that plane instead, as I understand it, went down to Pennsylvania. That plane was going to go into the Capitol building. And so, in many ways, what the terrorists failed to do on 9-11, the insurrectionists, the right-wing anarchists, I would call them more accurately, uh, the right-wing anarchists on January 6th succeeded in doing, and that would also appall the founders. But most of all, I think what everybody who was at the Constitutional Convention would say is this is exactly what we are talking about with the mob. This is Shays Rebellion. This is what we saw the need for a stronger federal government. The, the people forget in all the sort of the atmosphere of libertarianism we have these days, the United States Constitution was explicitly written in response to a sense that the central government of the United States was too weak. Yes. That it was unable to deal with the mob. It was unable to ensure domestic tranquility. To solve the problems of, of everyday people's lives. And one of the purposes of the Constitution was to make for a stronger central government that would help ensure domestic tranquility. Um, these are phrases where there, there are some phrases 
in the Second Amendment that are paid, I think, a lot of attention to. But I think if there's anything I wish my fellow Americans would do more of is pay attention to some of the other phrases in the Constitution. And domestic tranquility and general welfare are two of those phrases. And coming out of it, what do you feel like our obligations, uh, there's politicians and military figures who listen to this podcast, and then also just everyday voters and, and citizens. What is our obligation for the people who watched that event on television or online as, as I did, and you're just sort of stunned to see uh, the collapse of, of uh, or the, 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 to see that the temple of democracy uh, be desecrated? What's our obligation or duty to go to Cicero's term? What's our duty coming out of this? What do we need to think about, do, talk about to make sure tragedy like that never happens again? Well, um, in one way, I want to point at my book. In another way, I don't. I think first principles is important. Yes. That, that said, I think the weakest part of my book was the epilogue. Um, if I could rewrite the epilogue today, I think I would. And the two things I really would emphasize are the importance of nonviolent politics. I am, I think it's, we all have the duty to vigorously oppose domestic political violence in any form. From any party for any cause. Exactly. I, I, those who support political violence, I am against, left or right. Uh, my support for them is entire, I'm a First Amendment fundamentalist. People have the right to say what they need to say. They have the right to gather peace, peaceably. Peaceable assembly and nonviolent speech are essential. Uh, the other thing, the, the other shoe of our system is the vote. People who impede the right to vote are acting in an un-American way. People who support and help voting are acting in a patriotic way. And I wish that politicians would get up on their hind legs and talk about the vote as the basic building block of this country. And if you try to stop people from voting, you are acting in an unpatriotic way. And this needs to be hit in a nonpartisan way. And any attempts to disenfranchise people, I think, are also, especially through false claims of fraudulence, I would like to see some people punished for, for asserting fraud when it's not there. Um, it undermines faith in the system. Right now, I think what, what one third of all Republicans think the election was stolen. Uh, and it wasn't. We've had court after court. We've had examinations of, 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 of the evidence independently in, in two, two score, two, 50 courts. Uh, there is no evidence. And I think the failure of our leadership to shut that down and say, look, you need to stop talking about fraud and start talking about voting. Uh, the sense that we've lost a hold of first principles. And here I would fault the Democratic Party more than the Republican. The Democrats don't seem to have a handle on how to talk about this. And I don't understand why. No, I, th I think that's right. And, and I, would, I would maybe add on top of that also when we think about the disenfranchisement we put on ourselves, right? Too many people don't vote. They don't participate in the political process. And then when they do, when I look at, you know, what happened in Virginia, put partisan, uh, put, put what candidate was better aside, it's remarkable and disappointing to me to see that as a country, as a state adjacent to Washington, D.C., 
that the Republican Party did not suffer the consequences for their refusal to adequately condemn, distance themselves, separate themselves from the acts on January 6th. I mean, the Democrats ran bad campaigns. They should be faulted for that. But the idea that uh, we're just going to go back to politics as normal when something like this has happened just a few months before is uh, unfathomable to me. Yeah, I don't understand why. I thought that the Republican Party would repudiate white right-wing anarchism and white supremacism, and instead it seems to be bending over backwards to make homes for both those things in the, inside the party. Yeah, and then, and then to go to your point, I think this is a good place to wrap. But the political violence on both sides, menacing on both sides. I, I, I remember I was at a, I was at a, I walked by a political protest in Portland and I saw Antifa dressed in essentially stormtrooper gear, carrying bats, ready to go fight people in a crowd. And I yeah. felt a chill go down my spine. You know, this is not what America is about. And I was at uh, some of the George Ford protests here in Texas uh, and saw. You know, people walking around with assault rifles and uh, dressed like they were occupying soldiers in Iraq and was equally appalled. This is not what the political process looks like. The whole point of the invention of the political process was to separate the solving of day to day issues from the deployment or the threat of violence. And, and both parties have to do and, and all people have to do a better job distancing themselves from the Catalines and the violence because it is it is not who we are and it's not what what Cato would want from us. I think you should write a book about American duty. That would be uh, a great idea. And using the Constitution uh, and the background of the classical text to talk about that. Well, I was just as I was going back through the book because I'm doing this series on uh, on four virtues. I, I noted you you talked about that prudence or, or wisdom being one of the two uh, of the cardinal virtues that it appears ex explicitly in the Constitution: justice and and wisdom being the two parts of it. And uh, I, I'm hoping this series wor works as a as a example of that. But I think your book here, the idea of going to first principles. What are the core ideas behind our system is, uh, is a key part to understanding what our duty is as well. Thank you very much. This has been a real pleasure. Well, uh, likewise, and I, I love the book, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon, and that, that, that uh, things won't get worse after this conversation like they did last time we talked. I hope not. <laughs> Thank you. You know, the Stoics in real life met at what was called the Stoa, the Stoa Pokile, the painted porch in ancient Athens. Obviously, we can't all get together in one place. Uh, first off, because this community is like hundreds of thousands of people and we couldn't fit in one space. But we have made uh, a special digital version of the Stoa. We're calling it Daily Stoic Life. It's an awesome community. You could talk about like today's episode. You could talk about the emails, ask questions. That's one of my favorite parts is interacting with all these people who are using Stoicism to be better in their actual real lives. You get more Daily Stoic Meditations, over the weekend, uh, just for the Daily Stoke Life members, quarterly Q&As with me, cloth-bound edition of our Best of Meditations, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, including discounts, and this is the best part, all our Daily Stoke courses and challenges totally for free, hundreds of dollars of value every single year, including our New Year, New You Challenge. We'd love to have you join us. There's a two-week trial totally for free. Check it out at dailystoiclife.com.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History for Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some, as a fighter for black rights. She is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.